right. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer. I'm a data scientist at IWACA, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Rishab Merotra. Rishab first did a Bachelor of Computer Science and a Master of Mathematics at Birla Institute of Technology and Science in India. After that, he worked at Goldman Sachs for a couple of months, but then actually decides to leave and does a PhD in machine learning at University College London. In 2017, he joined Spotify as a research scientist, and he stays there for around four years, where he actually ends up being a tech lead. He is now currently the director of machine learning at ShareChat, a leading Indian social media platform. So today we're going to talk about recommender system, about his career, about the creator economy, and advice that Rishab might have to progress in your career. So hi, Rishab. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. How are you today? Hi, Neil. Good morning. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. I love this podcast and the theme behind this podcast, which is like covering the AI stories and not really kind of focusing on the on the technical depth of it, which we can always get to but like the, the broader theme about like career evolution. So I really kind of listened to a bunch of these episodes in the past and like really kind of found them, the nice stories compelling. So I'm excited to be here and excited in this like sunny day in London as well. So I wish we could do it in person, but hopefully the next time. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for your comments. I really appreciate. And yeah, by the way, if anyone is interested, um, feel free to subscribe to my YouTube channel and follow me or Richab on LinkedIn we're posting quite frequently. So yeah, let us know if you're interested. And yeah, so let's start first by your background. Um, I mentioned that you studied computer science and right. mathematics, but right. how did you get into this world of AI and data science and machine learning? How did you get interested by this? Yeah, I think like I grew up in India and like during my undergrad years, like this is 2009, 2010, I started kind of, I, I was doing some internship at a company called Inside View, and they're like, they're, they deal with like business news and they were processing, doing some information extraction at the time. And that's when I started working with a, a lead scientist and he had a PhD in like biomedicine and NLP. And back then, just looking at the rigor at which the, the computer scientists, I wasn't used to computer scientists doing a lot of like scientific rigor in the evaluation and the end to end ecosystem development. And when I kind of looked at that project, that kind of gave me a great perspective that oh, I mean, this is another way of thinking about some of these projects. These are not deterministic systems, which you'll code the program and like they'll give you this output, but there's a lot of like learning and information extraction going on. So back then, this is 2009, 2010, I started kind of diving deeper into understanding what other projects are around there. And then I got introduced to this NLP field, natural language processing. And up until then, like, I think like back in my college, we had great computer science syllabus uh, and the curriculum. But the machine learning was really like suboptimal. I mean, it was kind of just getting used to. I mean, co colleges in India were starting to add machine learning in their programs. Mm -hmm. And I, I still remember to read some of these papers, we used to go to the library. And library had these like five computers who had access to IEEE and ACM and all that. So again, it was like, I mean, 800 students, five computers. It wasn't really as open access as we wanted or as it is today, right? So again, like I've gone through that phase where I'm like at the start, I didn't know what are the good papers. I used to read up some crap papers from random conferences, try to implement them. The results didn't hold much. And then I started realizing that 
maybe like there are these specific conferences which are like more trustable i started following some academics and then kind of came around to understand oh these some of these academics are different universities they keep publishing at the kdd icml conferences i didn't know back then like what these conferences are and should i be kind of paying more respect and attention to one versus the other so for me it was a lot of like organic learning on my own like failing and seeing okay what works what didn't work send some papers to some random conferences they just accepted in like a week i thought maybe something weird is going on and then i realized oh i mean you you got to submit to like good venues try to have some good references good reviewers so went through all that journey uh which introduced me to this whole world of machine learning which is a, a lot to me was kind of self paced learning at the start and uh later on it became like okay can i get some internships and then there's some some it was a nightmare to get internships back then on some of these top problems as well so i've had this journey uh of realizing like what it is what is the feel about like looking at these conferences trying to understand what what gets done one of the learnings there for me was that back during my college like a lot of like the academic researchers were focusing on like way old algorithms like db scan was a thesis project which somebody offered me and db scan was published way back in 1996 and this is 2010 and i i'm like i'm not working on like some 14 year old stuff which is not state of the art at the same time like i i saw a bunch of people at columbia and princeton doing a lot of work on uh, non parametric statistics and non parametric clustering so i'm like if i have to work on clustering then maybe i should pick up what's the state of the art in the field right now but then maybe i don't know what the state of the art is so how do i kind of go around this which is cycle was uh, something which which again like i i had to kind of find out learn from my mentors from seniors and here is one important lesson i learned i think like it was a lot of i've seen a lot of people focus on i mean focus a lot of time and effort on some projects some problem domain but that problem may not be the best problem to optimize for to work towards so if you're spending time and effort i think vetting that is this the best project you could be spending time and effort on would also be very important because when i started prioritizing some important projects then kind of they give they did give me a better perspective and i was kind of attacking a lot more interesting problems than working on like two decade old problems not that it's not interesting but maybe it's more fruitful if you're more state of the art aware so when you talk about projects was it projects during your phd or during your bachelor uh, so, or master yeah so this is my this is during my undergrad so during okay. my undergrad yeah. uh yeah i so basically like i started applying for internships and what happened was because i didn't have ml experience so people were not offering me ml internships so it, it became a vicious cycle and i wanted a way out so i think the way out for me was that what would i do in an internship can i just do it on my own or with my friends mm-hmm. so again with one of my friends back in undergrad like his, so he has a company back in bangalore right now and so we we wrote the first paper together on on some information extraction from business articles and uh, based on that like i started realizing okay this is how research is done this is how you approach ml projects and then i started kind of uh, completing the project end to end we wrote about it we published it and that kind of helped me get some good internships and uh, in the meantime something happened i did get accepted into this machine learning summer school in singapore so i i was heavily like i wanted to attend the summer school because that's the best five dense days in my life because you ha- used to have like 8 hours of lectures 3 hours each and the lecturer would be some great academic in the community who would go from zero to state of the art in 3 hours so it was very hard for me to follow but then like at least like if i followed along until 60% i was really aware of hey what's going on and then i can dive deep, deeper so i think these summer schools were really nice because back then 
we didn't have a lot of these uploaded on YouTube. Now we do. So I think like one of the good takeaways for current students is that you have a lot of these summer schools available on YouTube and you can literally take it and take them on your own pace and learn more about the state of the art in the field, starting from scratch and zero. So you mentioned something interesting about the project and it's actually important to take time to think about tackling the right project. How do you know when you are actually tackling the right project? Because that's something that everyone, it's a problem that everyone has, I guess. It's everyone is trying to solve problems. And how do you know that you're spending your time on the right thing? Yeah, I think it's more of an art right now to get that right. One of the one of the couple of things which has helped me and I kind of keep telling my team now in my new company is that I think like take take your time before writing one line of code, just take your time and extrapolate all the hypotheses, simulate what would happen, try to see what kind of output you can expect. And is this the result you want to go after? Is this ambitious enough? Is the result in either case, right? It's surprising. It, it kind of confirms your hypothesis. If it doesn't, what could go wrong? So I think like, a lot of times you could just sit back without writing any line of code, literally just simulate the world and see how it plays out in the long run. And then maybe come up with all these questions which you want to answer. And oftentimes some of these questions can be verified via some data analysis. So I think a common mistake I keep seeing is that people are throwing ML models at the problem without understanding the problem domain enough. And I don't think I can repeat it enough times to convince that, hey, it's it's fine, you do that. But make sure you spend time in doing the right data analysis and like knowing that if you even solve this problem, is it going to give you the gains later on or not? So I think like just sticking a step back and thinking from that bird's eye view often gives you a good understanding of the, the space. And then you can plan your trajectory accordingly. That's super interesting because actually just on Friday, I actually posted something on LinkedIn where I mentioned that before starting to tackle a problem, everyone should spend time planning around this problem. Like, how you, do you want to approach this problem? What the outcome will be? And by doing this, first of all, you can solve the problem better, but it also helps you to realize whether you actually need to solve this problem or not. Because usually people see a problem and they will directly dive into it, oh, I need to solve that. But without thinking, is this actually going to be useful? Is this actually going to impact the business. So right. not only in research, but also in industry, I think it's kind of yes. the same the same thing. Yeah, and, and there's, a, there's a very nice kind of added advantage to it. One is like you're minimizing unpleasant surprises later on. So if you're really kind of an, analyzing all the different trajectories the problem could take, right? You're kind of mentally getting pre- better prepared. Mm-hmm. And human minds mostly is like, I mean, they're very comfortable in scenarios which you have kind of faced before, right? Mm-hmm. So again, that's that's why you can kind of hedge the risk of failure by being more plan oriented. And one of the other things is like, oftentimes your design choices at the start will have implications later on. So I think like if you're, if you're mentally walking through this process, you might end up with a better design right away and avoid a couple of future failures. You're not going to avoid all failures. That's not the goal, Mm -hmm. but at least like you can architect it, architect your solution and approach the problem in a, in a slightly better way than before. So you do your undergrads and also a master at the same university in India and already at, during your undergrad, you actually already published some papers, which is quite a great achievement. Something that I'm interested in is you do this kind of very technical bachelor and master in maths and computer science. And then after that, you actually decide to work at Goldman Sachs as an right. analyst. So right. can you talk a bit about this transition from publishing paper in machine learning to working as an analyst at Goldman Sachs. 
Yes. Yeah, I know. I think like that's one of the, yeah, I mean, I'm quite proud of that, proud of that decision because even though it was a very short month, like I, I stayed at Goldman for like six to seven months, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And in that time I was working with the pricing data reference technologies team. And I think the, the intention was very clear that, hey, I want to do a PhD because I love machine learning, but I want to do it with some industry experience. So the industry experience is not always, at least in my head, it's not always about going in and kind of working. It's also just making your brain aware of all the nuances that exist. So I think like, even if I get to spend one year or a month in a company, I can get a bird's eye view of like how the different organizations are set up, what kind of problems are they tackling? What, what are the data bridges? What's the pipeline like? So I think like the moment an academic student has that understanding, then, I mean, literally it kind of changes your perspective for the PhD. Because that's why I, I kind of really encourage people who, who have an opportunity to go spend time during internships or during like just after your undergrad before your PhD, go spend some time in the industry, find out about what are the real world problems which people are facing. So at Goldman, I was kind of working with this team, which was kind of modeling prices at scale. And in here, right? I mean, like you, you, you need machine learning to reduce the errors. You, you need machine learning to have this robust data because a lot of times trading decisions happen on this data. And if, if there are like corruptness in the data, then like the end trading decisions has huge monetary implications on the company. So again, just identifying that, hey, this is something really boring, right? Because from an, it's not an ML model, but it's the robustness of your data pipeline. So again, it took me like a while to appreciate the importance of that, which is kind of stuck with me for the for the next ten years, right? That yeah, I mean, like you 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 can't just focus on the on the fancy looking ML models, but then if your data pipelines are corrupt, then the like garbage in, garbage out, right? So I think like so again, it was very intentional because even during my PhD, right, I I, I kept on going to internships to just get a sense of what's the work going on in the industry in the in the industry and how I can kind of better adapt my mental thinking about problems using that. And one of the one of the nice things which has happened as a result is that I'm pretty active on LinkedIn looking at what kind of roles are different companies hiring for, like including iOka, right? I mean a bunch of very amazing credit risk and like risk modeling machine learning happening in your team. And just kind of in 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 that in that uh, application for like hiring a data scientist, right? Somebody mentions those two lines about what exactly is the work. A lot of it is like about general generic information about the company, about the role. But then there's a couple of lines about what is this specific role about. So this is very useful because then you can literally look at a bunch of companies posting these profiles and then you have, you can extrapolate. Oh, now Twitter has a team on safety and like trust and safety on, on, on machine learning models, or this company has a team on this. So that over a period of time that accumulates. So that gives you that great perspective on what's going on in the industry. And then you start drawing parallels. So I think these are just kind of planting the seed in your brain which you can leverage later on, like two, three years down the line. So I think that initial exposure to real world problem was my motivation to go to Goldman and uh, and see, contribute whatever I could in the few months there and then come back and focus on the research. That's very atypical. I would say like most of the people I know, they usually straight after the master go into doing a PhD and then they either stay in academia or join industry. But I really don't know a lot of people who go into industry and then go back to do a PhD. So already from the start, you had this in mind that you wanted to learn how industry works for a couple right. of months and right. then do your PhD. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think like my, my, my engineering front was always there, that I wanted to be an engineer to develop solutions at scale and impact. So I think I was always motivated, even by the research, right? If you look at a bunch of my papers, they're more on like, how do we solve problems at scale impacting like millions of users? So always, right, there's, there's different flavors of research. 
And the thing which has kind of stuck with me most is how can I solve actual real world problems which are inspired by what the industrial systems are currently facing. And often a lot of these problems are deep science problems, but the engineers tackling it may not understand or acknowledge the science depth of the problem they are tackling. And this is why I think like, I mean, the, the moment you're heterogeneous, you, you know about the industry, you know about what's going on in economics, you know about what's going on in some of the other fields. Now your brain has access to privileged information, which others don't. So you are giving that undue advantage, right? It's an unfair advantage, to be honest, but you're doing the hard work. You're kind of keeping tap of what's going on in multiple fields, in the industry, across different companies, in the academia, in different research groups. And over a period of time, right? I mean, you start realizing, oh shit, yeah, I know a lot more about this. You, And then you start connecting these dots in a higher level. And that kind of becomes very illuminating. So that has helped me immensely to draw parallels between how a human in the loop, like risk aware system at IOCA might look like versus somebody doing some, some clinical psychology. There's a human in the loop there working with machine learning system as well. You start drawing parallels between industries. And that's kind of is a very nice process to go through mentally. So when you actually decide to leave Goldman Sachs, I know you had the plan since you right. started, but was it something easy? Because I'm guessing you're making good money there and then you have to join a PhD where you don't earn as much money. So do you choose passion over money at this point? Yeah, of- yeah, I think yeah, I think there's, there's a broader point here, right? I mean, short-term versus long-term optimization. I mean, this is a hard problem for machine learning to track. It's a hard mm-hmm. problem for like my systems, which I'm developing at ShareChat. And I developed at Spotify to crack. So I think even on a human perspective, right? You don't want to commit too early to an objective without knowing the long-term implication of the objective. I think this is true for ML models. This is true for like human endeavors as well. So I think like you 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 get like short-term gains with long-term detriment, or you get like suboptimal short-term gains, right? So I think like here it was very clear to me that the industry is moving towards machine learning. This is like 2010, 2012, and in that deep learning was still not very common like topic models ldas like graphical models was mm-hmm. was still like bayesian methods were still state of the art back then and machine learning was not as omnipresent as it is in this decade right now but again like you start seeing these again if you're aware of the industrial trends right then you start having that vision that oh maybe this is how things are going to play out so again mm-hmm. today we know right i mean if you're not aware of blockchains mm-hmm. then like you're literally missing out on core technologies so in, in 10 years time you don't get to complain oh shit i don't know anything about it why because you weren't proactive enough to kind of invest the effort into understanding something when literally nobody in the world knows the deep, the depth about some of these topics. Mm-hmm. Back then, it made sense, right? I mean, that, hey, uh, this is something which is still, I mean, machine learning is still in its infancy, right? I mean, a lot of IT companies, a lot of technology companies are kind of using it. Now it's going into the biomedicines and the chemicals and all the other like science, real world sciences field. And still like it's touching upon finance. Now it's touching upon risk modeling, a bunch of other, areas and and that's just going to increase and increase and increase. So I think the moment you start seeing that, then you know that the track you're on may not be the most optimal track. And then I think it's up to us to diversify our skill set and upskill yourself. So just because your undergrad is over or your PhD is over means that learning has stopped. I think that's a very suboptimal way to think about one's career. Yeah, but still the choice of like, even if you think about the long term, I guess when you're in the present, right, you start to make money and you suddenly quit to do a PhD. Was this not difficult? Was it something, an easy choice for you? Like, I know I want to do a PhD and I'm going to do it. Yeah, for me personally, like, I think like, because 
I think like a lot of times, like you, you are in a financial situation wherein you have a lot of like education debt and then you cannot afford to quit a PhD, right? So my education was like paid for my, my parents. So at least that helped me a lot. But also like if you, a lot of the computer science PhDs are funded. So, I mean, because like the, the, the UK government funds a lot of these UCL PhDs and I was sponsored. So that meant at least I'm, I'm losing out on the cash I would earn, but at least like the investment from my side was more on the missed opportunity mm-hmm. rather than like paying money for some of these uh, programs, right? So, so I think like this is why it's very important for like industrial companies to keep sponsoring the PhD students at different labs. And that's why the grants, the, 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 a lot of taxpayer money goes into these research programs, right? And I personally have benefited from the taxpayer money because again, like my PhD wasn't sponsored by, by the government. I got a Google research award to kind of cope fund my PhD as well. So again, I'm sitting here literally thankful to all the grants, which my, my supervisor, my, my department received, which could fund these PhD students to, and then who, who then go on to create like mm-hmm. uh, value for the ecosystem five years down the line. I guess, yeah, I think that's quite impressive that you're already at such an early stage of your career focused on long-term goal and decide to do this PhD. So maybe can you talk just a little bit about the PhD, what you worked on? Yeah. Yeah, essentially what you worked on. And Yeah, so I think, yeah, so I think for my PhD, right, I think I, I had a few, I was fortunate enough to have a few offers and uh, some of them were in the US, some of them in Australia and like one from UCL in London. And I kind of got a lot of advice. And one of the most prominent advice was like, you want to stay very close to where the world is, right? So London is literally GMT zero, right? So I think like as a PhD student in London, you have access to a lot of tech and finance companies in London, in UK, but also like travel to New York is five hours, travel to anywhere in Europe is like two, three hours. So you're literally in the center of the world. And you kind of, you have this great network of giving talks and like attending conferences and, and going to on research visits. As opposed to one of the other offices I had in Australia, I really like the professor Scott Sanner. So he, he, he worked on POMDPs and sequential decision optimization at the University of Australia. And it was funded by NICTA, one of these like uh, a government agency for machine learning. And again, it was a very strong group there. But one of the advice which even Scott gave to me, right? Hey, for a PhD, for postdoc, I think you should come here. But for a PhD, I think you're better off in a well-connected place. You don't want to be literally away from the world when you're doing this. So again, that that made sense because during my PhD as well, I started collaborating and kind of moving around inside Europe quite a bit. For my PhD, I started working on mostly like search and recommender systems. And one of the topics which I picked up was understanding user task. So often when users interact with these search systems, there's a task they have. So how do we extract information about, like if you plan a trip to London, right? I mean, you're going to book your flights, you're going to book your Uh, hotels, you're going to move around here. If you're a vegetarian, you're going going to hunt for vegetarian restaurants. Mm -hmm. The first time you search on Google, like flights to London, the system can extrapolate about what your task is and what you're going to do in the next coming two months. So again, like to do that, we need to develop these hierarchical task ontologies that here's a big big task. There's there's going to be some subtask in each of these. Each subtask will have some decompositions. So part of my PhD was how do we develop these Bayesian hierarchies of tasks? And there's no supervision because nobody really tells you this is my task. So all of this is unsupervised. How can we learn from logged data and then extrapolate from there? So I think broadly speaking, right? I mean, this problem of understanding user intent and user task is omnipresent. Like if you look at any search system, if you look at any recommender systems, understanding users is the key to personalization. And again, like I think the the PhD program helped me kind of 
form my mental models around what works in this setting and what kind of problems, how do you approach these problems at scale? So I benefited a lot. And I did visit like internships. I, I did like four to five internships in like two, three years time during my uh, PhD. That helped again tremendously. So was it like predicting what someone wants to do in the future, essentially? That's what you mean by task. Like what yeah. so someone like will do in the coming days or weeks. Right. If you know that I'm going to go to London, you can predict that. Right. I'm one, uh, I don't know, go out at go this club. Eye, you're going to buy a ticket of London Eye and you can do recommendations and ads. So I think like that, that's one of the downstream tasks, uh, downstream prediction, like what's, what's the user going to do later on? Mm-hmm. But to do that, you got to develop this ontology that, hey, the task is from a query, you can go to the task. Okay, the task is planning a trip. And right now the user is in this subtask of like booking a flight. If they're booking a flight, maybe they already have a visa or maybe they already know where they're staying. And then you can extrapolate on like, what are the sequential dependencies on these tasks? So again, it becomes a temporal sequential problem that is this subtask a requirement for a second subtask or can they be independently done? So understanding those temporal relationships. A lot of this happens when you already have this hierarchy. We never had this hierarchy. So again, how do we extract these hierarchies from search logs was one of the problems which I went to Microsoft Research a bunch of times. I had access to Cortana and Bing datasets to kind of try some of these models at scale there. And what's the goal of like doing this? Is it to, for example, if you know that I'm going to London and that I like to go out, are you going to show me, send me an email like, oh, this club is open, you should go there? Or is it something related to ads? Yeah, so not necessarily ad, but also like proactive assistance. So right now, most of the systems developed are reactive. You search for something and then we're going to give that to you. But increasingly more and more, a lot of these systems are becoming proactive. That, oh, I can anticipate what you need. And that I might show that on your profile, on your on your recommendations, on your search. So, I mean, it could power a lot of like related searches, right? On the right, you have some suggestions. or so some of the results can be on the next step. So literally, I think the world is moving towards more and more proactive. That the, Literally, if you look at, a bunch of these applications now, you don't have to tell Spotify or ShareChat, this is what I want. The homepage is already populated with what we think you want. So again, that user prediction, user trajectory are all prediction models which each of these companies have. And there we don't wait, we reduce the friction. Like I don't wait for user to tell me what they want. I'm just going to populate that and then learn on the fly. So I think like that proactiveness is what some of these systems gives us. So can you predict what I'm going to do after this podcast? <laughs> yeah, I think like, I mean, given the time of day, given the like London weather, I think these are all signals, which I think a lot of these companies are already using to predict, <laughs> scarily predict like how, how well, which, what, what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm really like, even though I work on machine learning, I'm often very, very surprised that the kind of recommendations some of these systems throw at me that how, how in the name of God could you know that I would want this? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, like a, a good enough machine learning model is very close to magic, right? So the yeah. way it works, I mean, the, the, the outcome is like really magic for the users have done, right? Yeah, I agree. Sometimes you just train a model and you even don't really think it's going to work, but somehow it works really good. And Yeah, especially when you're training it on like what 300 million users data sets, right? I mean, you'll have your music soulmate somewhere in the world. And like, I mean, the model is going to pick that up and like learn and personalize the recommendations for you. So even though this is collaborative filtering from the 2005s onwards, but like done at scale is such a huge, powerful data set to kind of do this on. So you essentially do your bachelor and master, then you work at Goldman Sachs, and then you have this PhD where it's essentially some kind of recommender system, right? Where you're trying to 
right. understand users and what they want to do next um, in the coming days or weeks. But actually, after this PhD, you decide to join Spotify as a research scientist. Um, I'm omitting a few things. I know you've done other things during your PhD, but yeah, what about Spotify? Like, why do you decide to join Spotify and what did you work on there essentially? Yeah. Yeah. So this is 2017. So I finished my PhD mid 2017 and 2017, I joined Spotify. So I've been at Spotify for close to four and a half years until last month. And so again, like during the end of my PhD, I did try to start up and we had a user.com, user.context.ai as a startup. We did have some initial success, but because of some visa issues, I decided to go full-time and revisit my entrepreneurial plans later on. But then during my uh, journey from finishing my PhD to kind of getting into an industrial lab setting, I had a few offers from a bunch of different large-scale ML companies. But one of the good things about Spotify was that it offered a wide breadth of very interesting problems. So again, like I love Spotify, right? As a user, right? I mean, like I've been using it for since 2011 or something. I've been paying like back then I didn't pay for any app. Like Spotify was the only app I paid for from 2011 to 2014. Uh, And then I think like one of the good things which happened was I did an internship with a researcher called Fernando Diaz. And he he was at Microsoft Research in New York. And he joined Spotify to uh, spin up this research org at Spotify. So again, he was the main point of contact I had. And uh, the more I talked with them, the more I talked with the team, the more I realized that there's a bunch of very, very interesting machine learning problems at scale, which is already in production. And you can kind of go in and kind of add a research element to that, understand what's going on. And there's a lot of like core recommendations problems yet to be solved, but this is the right spot to do them. So here was an option wherein I could be part of get that experience of growing a team because I was one of the founding members of the research org in London. Again, I was the first research hire here. And then the entire research org across the company was like very small, but this position offered me the chance to kind of grow and be part of this growing uh, research org inside a company. Like Spotify was close to 15 billion valuation back then. This is 2017, just before the IPO. Uh, And then like, again, research is there. The ML sophistication is there, but how do you kind of, make it go state of the art and like move the state of the art in the process. So that exposure was very attractive to me that like, I can get to do that as of like a fresh uh, joinee, right? I mean, I was just a research scientist joining a new team. So again, like that was a lot of like attractiveness. One of the other things which is really important for me was again, during my PhD, I published heavily. And that also gave me a strong network of academic collaborators, industrial collaborators. So it was important for me to kind of uh, be part of a community of a company that values research. So here at Spotify, I mean, talking with the leaders, I was amazed that like, it's not just a bottom of push, but like the top leadership was very, very excited about uh, not just using state of the art inside the products, but also contributing. So again, at Spotify, right? I mean, we've, we've published a lot of papers. You've written a lot of blog posts. You've hosted a lot of these events in London, across the U.S., you also release public data sets, like two, three of them, like huge large-scale data sets. So again, like the, the collaboration and the trust with the academic community from an industrial perspective, that is a very nice incentive alignment for me that here is a company who wants to get her name out on the research side, and I want to be active in the academic community as well. So this offered me both, right? Do mm-hmm. some good machine learning, deploy it at scale in the product and kind of be active in the community as well. So that was like a very appealing uh, decision for me. And I don't regret any any bit of it. It was like 
an amazing experience. I think it was one of the best decisions I took back then. Cool. Glad, glad to hear this. So can you maybe explain what kind of research you worked on? Like why is AI and machine learning such so important at Spotify? Yeah, I think like Spotify is one of the uh, best places to do machine learning, to be honest, because again, it's, it's, not a, it's not a small space. I think like there's a lot of companies to do good machine mm -hmm. learning at. But Spotify, like ML is, a, is at the center of what Spotify does. I mean, if you look at the content space, right? 80 million tracks, like close to 4 million podcasts. So as a user, I can only stream for like a few hundred tracks. Mm -hmm. All the remaining 79 million, like 900,000 tracks are like discovery tracks to me. So when you have this huge content space, and you have like limited user bandwidth, the user is going to spend a few hours with you on a per day basis max. So how do you distill all that information and surface the right recommendations? So in general, on the outside, it might just look like it's just one recommendation problem. Is that it? But no, I mean, the more you understand, right? I mean, the more it's about understanding the user needs, user interest. It's not just understanding our user interest. We got to match the listeners with the right content. Mm -hmm. So there is a trajectory, right? I mean, like in 2000, when I went to my college in undergrad in India, one of the first English songs I heard was like Enrique. So Enrique Iglesias was one of my introductions to like the, the non-Mollywood music. But then like from there on, I had my own trajectory, right, of music. And I discovered a lot of these artists. So what should that trajectory look like for each user? What are the right discoveries to do for a user? How do you balance the, the familiarity with the diversity, with the nostalgic element? Like nostalgia is pretty high on, on some of these users kind of liking this. So like All Out 80s, right? All Out 80s is a playlist, which is about the 80s songs. But then what should All Out 80s be for you versus for me? These are all different, right? So how do you understand the content hypothesis there? And how do you tailor it for user needs is an important challenge. And then it's not just about user needs, right? It's about how do you do that for the users, do that mm -hmm. for the artist, do that for the platform. And again, it's not just music, music and podcast, right? And more and more content, audiobooks and all that later on. So podcast understanding is like a lot of natural language understanding problems. Here also you have like short-term, long-term, balancing different objectives, multi-objective modeling, experimentation, a lot of the effort, which from the outside doesn't seem much, but we spend a lot of time in establishing good experimentation practices, like good A-B testing, large-scale A-B testing, large-scale kind of validation of these metrics. So a lot of machine learning goes into counterfactual evaluation, into like sequential decision-making and all that. So again, like from the look of it, it's like one ML problem, but if you zoom in, Homepage is a different ML model. The radio is a more sequential recommendation problem. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the search is like more of a learning to rank. You put in a query, you kind of rank items for it. So again, each of these touch points users have are powered by different, different machine learning models. And they're optimizing for different, different goals. On, on home, we're trying to balance music and podcast to you. Do you like podcasts? Would you be open to consuming more podcasts? Is this the right podcast to show to you? And not just this, right? I mean, like we literally, we are recording a podcast right now. Who is the right audience to surface this podcast to? So again, it's not just user-centric, it's like the creator-centric as well. So how do we do all this? Like a bunch of very exciting ML problems, even today. Can you maybe talk or dive into like one small problem that you worked on just to have an idea? I mean, yeah. I have, I get the overall picture right, and right. I, yeah, I can, because I'm in the field, I can see that it's very challenging, but I would be interested to see like what's, what would be like one project or one right. you know, small part or something that you worked on. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things which is closest to my heart is the work we did recently in the last two years on, on the radio product. So literally sets. So sets is how we generate these playlists for you as a user. Now, 
on a user, right? I mean, when you look at these sets, how are we doing track ranking on these playlists? Mm-hmm. So that's a specific problem. And again, it could be in a radio setting wherein like you 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 look at a track and then hey, show me some tracks related to this radio. Or you already have playlists and we're kind of ranking the tracks within the playlist. Now in this world, we could be doing, we could just sort by familiarity. That hey, what's which artists are you most have greatest affinity for and then recommend that to you. But then like some users love it. Oh yes, I love familiar music. Some users hate it. They're like, no, no, I already know of these. Mm-hmm. Give me something more exciting, right? So some users have this discovery propensity that, oh no, 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 I want to discover more content. So again, we develop some ML models that what are users like? Some users, what's the taste horizon of users? Some users are very specialist. They have a very narrow horizon mm-hmm. of listening. Some users are more generalist. So then we can have ML prediction models on each user level. You're making that user level prediction. Now imagine using that to inform your sequencing. Now, oh, I know this user is like really, they, they love diverse music. Then my, my ranking of track should be diverse enough. But sometimes it's like, you come back, you keep coming back to the playlist, you want some freshness there. So again, can we balance freshness with discovery, with familiarity? The question then becomes, what's happening to the artist? Are the artists getting enough exposure here? So then what we did was we said, no, we want to push the tail artists as well. So not just a popular artist should get all the exposure. We should make sure that some of the tail artists, tail content also gets exposed. So now suddenly this becomes a very hard multi-objective problem mm-hmm. because you balance for users, you lose out on discovery, lose out on the tail artist. If you go for discovery tail artists, you lose out on the user satisfaction. So how do you balance it in a way that you're making the right decision for the right user. So this becomes a multi-objective machine learning problem. And over the last two years, I've spent a lot of my brain hours thinking about this problem. We've deployed a lot of like very good machine learning solutions, which are in production right now, uh, touching 400 million plus users. We've kind of actively published on this topic. A lot of the papers and patents we've filed recently are all on how do we do this multi-objective ranking in your sets. So one thing here that's, I want to, yeah, clarify is how do you, I mean, I can clearly see that it can get, it has a big impact, right? You do something, you change something and suddenly it impacts all the users, right? If you change the algorithm because you want to have this distinction between someone who likes to be surprised and someone who likes to have his own songs and not be surprised, but only listen to what he knows. I mean, you want to incorporate this, you deploy this algorithm and it can have a huge impact if you, if your algorithm isn't good enough, or if I don't know, whatever happens, you suddenly you're impacting, as you mentioned, 400 million or maybe even more users. So how do you deal with that? How do you make sure that once you deploy a new algorithm, it's actually working as intended? Yeah, I think like this is, I mean, this is one of the topics which I, I personally like love the most, like measurement. I call it measurement sciences. So again, like if I had all the powers in any company, I would spin up a huge team on measurement science and staff it with like PhDs and experts. So this is about like understanding user satisfaction. And often your metrics may not capture user satisfaction. If your metric is just looking at good things, then it's, quanti- it's going to quantify, look for good things happening and quantify that. But what about like user dissatisfaction? What about all the times user abandoned? I showed them some content. Maybe they looked at the first track, they were interested, they went away. So if your metric is not computing that dissatisfaction, then you're going to miss out on those bad things happening. So this is where like we spend a lot of time developing metrics which cover a horizon of user behaviors. Mm. And, and not just aggregate, right? I mean, in general, what people usually do is like, let's look at aggregate metrics across 400 million users over a two-week period and then ship it. No, that's bad. 
you you got to look at like which users are worst off especially in a world wherein your model is not just user centric it's artist centric as well so now you have an objective in your model which is not about users which is about artists and other stakeholder so then you got to make sure that your dissatisfaction in understanding your metrics over there are kind of pretty nice and we it's not just about the science behind it we have like regular monitoring channels right so literally we have these automated systems which are going to give you an alert on whenever there's a there's a surprise like i mean there's a metric drops what is a metric drop so we have these holdback groups so holdback is like when i what is the previous model and then we let it run for a period of time and then we measure the compared the performance with with that holdback and we have like long term holdbacks as well so long term is like a few months long long term holdback and then we keep comparing our performance with that holdback and then kind of uh, report a lot of these metrics and changes over there so again i think there's there's a lot of attention which everybody should give to measurement and i think no company in the world is doing the best job as it can i think it's a it's a never increasing process but one of the things which i learned from my microsoft internships was that if you have kind of set it up in an adversarial way that there are people who are going to game that metric but then there are other smart people who are going to make better and better and better version of these metrics so then you have two groups of people one is trying to improve the more nuanced metrics they can develop which capture user understanding and then there's other people who are the ml engineers who are going to develop a system which optimizes for that metric so i think like the more you can get this adversarial setup inside your org then you have like two sets of people the metric people are always one or two steps ahead of the people who can game the system for the metric wins because the ml engineers will go for the metric wins right because the okrs and a lot of the projects are around who oh, can we improve satisfaction by x percent so what does satisfaction mean today hopefully 6 months from now your definition of satisfaction will be a lot more nuanced and you got to monitor that over a period of time okay no that's yeah that's super interesting and quite clear to me how this works i guess yeah I mean it's quite complex right because you're impacting so many people and right. the problem obviously it seems simple when you say it you just want to predict what people want to listen next or give them some good play right. but actually having this right i guess even in the first place is already quite challenging yes. is it the same kind of work that you're doing now at sharechat i'm mentioning you're now the mach- director of machine learning yes. at sharechat so the work seems quite similar i mean the same area uh, recommending content to right. users but maybe slightly different do you want right. to maybe first mention what sharechat is i wasn't right. familiar with sharechat because right. before i talked to you so um, yeah. what it is and what kind of machine learning problem are you working on there right yeah so i think i'm i'm quite excited about my recent move uh, and that's why i made the move to be honest yeah. uh, of course but so sharechat is like a combination of two big apps one is sharechat itself it's la- india's largest content sharing ecosystem it has close to like 200 million mau's huge numbers it has like 50 million plus creators a lot of like billion plus shares happening on the platform so it's the biggest content social network back in india that's the first app the second app is moj so moj is a video short video platform similar to tiktok similar to instagram reels but then it's like again it's india's number one content uh, short video platform and right now it has close to 300 million maus looking at 100 million plus creators so again the moment you start looking at these apps these are like huge number of users huge number of creators and then the supply demand the marketplace problems i was talking about like looking for users looking for artists suddenly these problems are like so at scale here i mean looking at like what 300 plus million users 100 plus million creators and then having the ability to inform and nudge the creator journey as well So I think all of these kind of translate into uh 
very attractive machine learning problems for me. So at Spotify, over the last few years, I spent a lot of time, as I mentioned, on balancing, balancing user goals with creator goals, with like the platform goals. So here was the opportunity wherein I could really go and focus on the creator ecosystem in a much faster feedback loop. And let me explain what that means. So if I look at uh, Spotify, right? I mean, or, or even Netflix. So a lot of these companies care about creators, but then the 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 feedback loop on the creator is like a lot longer. I mean, just because I'm recommending some creators more doesn't mean the artist is going to create new music for me mm-hmm. because the artist creation, I mean, they are going to create music as, at, at their pace. But then if you look at the TikTok and Moj and the Instagram Reels example, here, the creator journey is a lot quicker. So if you start showing that creator more often, like on LinkedIn, if you start posting more on LinkedIn, you're going to get a lot of likes. Your LinkedIn algorithm picks it up. And then it's going to kind of make sure that you as a creator will get sustained growth on the platform. You're going to get more followers. You're going to get more likes, more comments, and more engagement, right? So share chat, the problems offered me this faster feedback loop on the creator ecosystem. And broadly, I'm very bullish on the entire creator economy. That like, I think like the world is getting, I mean, we are literally, you are a creator right now, right? I mean, like we are creating content for the masses to consume. So even, even though we have a core day job, like we are kind of creating in mass, like some of this content for the world to consume. So again, in that creator ecosystem, what are the problems? What are the machine learning there? What, what's the state of the art? What kind of problems are we going to deal with? So all of these problems were something which I kind of get access to in, in, this, in this new platform, new company. And again, talking with the leaders here, I was very, uh, again, the incentive alignment was there that the problems are the problems which I find interesting, but with a lot of like more attractiveness, the team is very smart, like very talented team. And I, I, I can get to establish a nice research culture here and like, again, improve the product, do some state-of-the-art machine learning, talk about that in the industry, talk about that in the community. So again, that incentive alignment is again, critically present here. So again, very excited about uh, the team, very excited about the company. We recently had a bunch of papers at CVPR, EMNLP, AAAI. So I think like the, the, the team is starting to uh, be very active in the research community in the top tier conferences. We've released a bunch of data sets recently as well, one, one at CVPR just this year. So again, like I think the a lot of very positive vibes about the talent, about the problem domain. So I'm quite excited about this opportunity now. So if I understand well, the difference between Spotify and ShareChat is that at Spotify, you want to optimize for the users. This is like the main target. It's the users. Right, Obviously, the artists are going to be impacted, but right. users is kind of the main target. Whereas at ShareChat, you have the users, but you also have the creators and you right. want to optimize for both. You want the creators to be happy because you want them right. to stay in your platform and right. you also want the users to be happy. Is that right? Yes, almost, right? I mean, Spotify I mean, Spotify and Spotify-like companies, right? They do care about creators and mm-hmm. they do care about like ensuring creator success. But again, the feedback loop is a lot more delayed there. And as a, as a scientist, the feedback loop is a lot more quicker here. Mm-hmm. Why? Because in a, in a three-week-long A-B test, I can see the creator behavior change on the platform. Why? Because I'm showing, I'm giving more exposure to that creator and targeting the right audiences for that. So the audience growth happens and they start realizing, oh, if I create this type of video, then it's more receptive by the users. If I create that that type of content, it's not very receptive. So again, their behavior changes on the fly as well. So as a scientist, you get access to a much faster feedback cycle. And that gives you a lot more harder problems you can tackle. Because otherwise, you'll have to wait for like a few months, long A-B tests, and that's like delayed research, right? So here, like, because the feedback loop is very quicker, you do get to kind of act on these problems. But more importantly, 
it throws a bunch of very novel problems as well like what does creator success look like like are we i mean just because you're getting like 1 million views on one of your posts are you guaranteed that you're going to receive similar traction in the next post or it just dies down so are you just like a one hit wonder or is it create is it a continuous success sustainable success for you and again what does success even mean to you right i mean maybe you care about new audience growth or maybe you care about monetization or maybe you care about like fans who can buy your merchandise so again the objectives for different creators would be different as well so how do we kind of do this balancing on the creator goals itself and then develop this user creator relationships on the fly as well so again all of these problems at scale and imagine this like huge flywheel right mm-hmm. so essentially now we know that hey games or crypto investment videos these are becoming huge popular on the platform but then not a lot of creators are creating it can i influence their creation as well and get more creators to create that type of video that type of podcast whatever it looks like and then nudge the creator cycle nudge the consumption cycle and do these supply demand experiments at scale so again a bunch of very tremendously interesting problems here yeah that looks quite interesting and again quite complex recommender systems is not something i'm like super familiar with but yeah understanding all of this looks like there are a lot of things that you need to understand and that you can change in the in the behavior yeah. which makes it quite interesting yeah just just one thing to worth highlighting right it's not just like recommender systems and like applied machine learning i mean these systems have an economic impact on society right i mean if you look at delivery right delivery is like the famous uk based uh, food uh, delivering company again like what restaurants delivery decides to show on the homepage has an economic impact on what revenue these restaurants earn mm-hmm. imagine doing that same for like uber or like different companies zomato back in india different like postmates in the us so all of these companies the recommender model over there is having a huge economic implication on the revenue earning potential of 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 the different suppliers there so again have we as a as a field matured enough to develop our understanding that the recommender designs we have right now have an economic impact are we well prepared to tackle it have we solved these problems have we paid attention enough to the different aspects and this is where a lot of these marketplace problems bring you a great mix of optimization of economics of like microeconomics macroeconomics of like state of the art machine learning of reinforcement learning long term short term of user understanding personalization so it's a very very heterogeneous mix of different different disciplines right so and that's why like i i want really to again over the last 3 4 years i've given a bunch of tutorials at kdd at rexes on this topic and trying to gather interest from multiple disciplinary people that hey it's a very fertile ground of research and like societal scale impact so let's all work together and design the right science behind it so it might seem like a simple question but i feel it's also very complex what's the goal overall like at at chair chat what's if you have one goal is it to make creators happy is it to make users happy is it to make them both happy is it to maximize the time users spend on your platform right. what's the goal yeah, think, overall yeah i think like that's a i mean the, the moment you specify the goal that goal might give you the optimization objective you go for so uh it's a hard problem it's a hard question to answer but just giving an attempt to it i think the goal is to make sure that there is a ecosystem which wherein the users get what they want but then like the creators are creating that content because you don't want as a platform to source content to pay for content or create custom content right so you want to develop an ecosystem which has these right feedback loops that users are getting what they want creator have the feedback on what user is wanting and then that flywheel can go on its own so you don't want to be the intermediary in between you want the ecosystem to evolve on its own 
So that means that you got to do right by the user, do right understanding by the creator, and then let the system play it out. So again, it should not be a very uh, prescriptive process mm-hmm. that, no, I want this content to be out there. That's why it's happening. No, I mean, let's look at what users want and the creators will automatically adjust and get the feedback. So we want to kind of make sure that we develop that sustainable ecosystem for the long run. So one last question which on ShareChat, which might be also a bit difficult, but I'm just interested right. because a lot of social media, I feel the goal sometimes is just to make people spend time on this platform and right. get addicted. And right. for example, I Instagram, I try to use it less and less. I deleted the app because right. I could feel it was just getting addicted, but it wasn't bringing right. me anything. So right. do you, is it something you pay attention? Like making sure your app is useful vs trying to make people addicted, which right. can be sometimes the same, but I think that's exactly. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I will like literally second exactly what you said. I think like a lot of the times what companies do is like they optimize for a proxy of user satisfaction. That proxy of satisfaction is mostly time spent or dwell time. And then you optimize for it, right? And then it kind of goes into these feedback loops. It goes into these filter bubbles and polarizations happen and all that thing happen, right? But if you look at like the last three, four years of the work I've done, right? Most of it is saying that, hey, as a platform, develop a backbone and explicitly state the objectives you want to optimize for and be very, very uh, scientific about it. So it's not just that, hey, I care about user engagement and that's it. No, what type of engagement is more healthy, more sustainable? So basically, if you start looking at the long-term impact of some of these things, then you start realizing that some of these seemingly nice gains are not really rewarding in the long-term. So what does it mean to be healthy and sustainable in the long-term? And let's make them as explicit objectives on a platform. So again, the multi-objective world, right, which I've been kind of really promoting and pushing over the last three, four years, it's starting to get a lot more attention from other companies as well. So that world says that if you're a platform, you got to have the backbone to specify the objectives you care about and not just wash your hands off that, hey, I'm, I don't know, I'm not optimizing for it. So any implications of it, I'm not accountable for it. I'm going in from the other extreme that be multi-objective, explicitly state the objectives and do a very rigorous job at measurement measure what the harm impact are, and then take an ins- take a very intentional decision that is this the objective you want to add or is this something you want the system to do for? And that's also ties in with the measurement aspect I was talking about. That if you have a very nice scientific approach to measurement, then you, some of your metrics are going to be bad. They're going to focus on like user engagement and that all that. But some of your metrics are going to look at the long-term impact that, hey, this is not sustainable and this is not sustainable neither for the creators nor for the user. So again, like, that involves doing a lot of like causal impact, causal causal analysis as well. That what's the long-term causal impact of some of your decisions. So that's why, like, again, I'm very excited because now we're kind of shaping up the team here as well because we're doing a lot of hiring. We are hiring decision scientists who are very experienced on causal inference and like long-term impact, and then like kind of hiring the experts to kind of uh, attack some of these problems with us. That's a good point. I think like if you want to optimize short-term engagement, then maybe you want to build an addictive platform because in the short term, the user is going to stay. But if you want to make sure users are staying in the long term, which I guess is what you actually want, then in this case, you don't want to have something too addictive because people are not going to like it in the end, I think. And it might- And you got to have metrics, right? I mean, if you don't have metrics, then you're literally, you're blind to it. 
these mm-hmm. things are happening you're not making it happen intentionally but not that this is not happening it's just happening but you're not measuring it so just because you're closing your eyes doesn't mean it's not happening right so that's why like i think it's the onus is on the machine learning scientists and the data analysis data scientists to develop the metrics so that the blind spots get reduced so i think like that's at least like that's one way in which we are tackling we're trying to tackle some of these problems here So I know we're going to spend like the last 5-10 minutes of the episode on focusing on career advice. Like obviously you've achieved quite a lot already, still got a lot to achieve with your new challenge at ShareChat. Right. But you've worked with a lot of data scientists, machine learning right. engineers throughout your career. So I just wanted to know what differentiates a very good machine learning engineer or data scientist from from a good one what's like the the difference for you yeah that's a very interesting question i don't think i've ever thought about this in this detail i think like well, yeah i mean th- there's a couple of things here one is like i i think most of the people i've seen excel right and even in my personal case like there are times i failed there are times i succeeded one of the things which helped me was like deep problem domain understanding that are you an ml engineer who's throwing an ml model of the problem or do you have a really good and deep understanding of what the problem problem domain is what's happening in your system understand what's going on so i think like i i i generally kind of respect uh, the data scientists ml engineers who know their system inside out and not just the engineering details but user behavior like what are the metrics what's happening what kind of changes will your system give what kind of metrics changes will happen what behavior is your kind of ignoring right now what's going on right so that problem domain understanding is critically important and often a lot of these mles they just outsource the work and this is something which is like a strict career suicide for you so if you're an ml engineer and if your team has a data scientist so often what happens is you develop the models and then you do nlp tests and then you back off you then let the data scientist come in and they do the analysis right what's happening now this is a nightmare scenario why because the ml engineers who are developing the models they don't know what's going on because they haven't spent hours deep diving into the data understanding what the nuances are and the data scientists who are looking at the data they don't know what kind of model changes have happened mm-hmm. so again like if there are bad things which would happen they're not going to look for it so they're going to be often blinded by a lot of these blind spots so this is where like if you're outsourcing your data analysis work to some data scientist that's like career suicide for you right as an as an applied machine learning engineer essentially so a lot of these people like they own all these aspects not that you have to do everything but then like at least don't just blindly offshore a lot of this like uh, data analysis to somebody else to do that for you and then hey i'm just going to look at the math and i like, care about some of these ml problems so i think most of it is like yeah understanding and developing the deep understanding of the problem domain and also like just like ability to learn to learn right so i think a lot of the hiring which i'm doing now and even before spotify it's fine if you don't have like relevant experience on multi objective modeling and all that it's just that if you have the scientific rigor in thinking about the problems and like approaching the problem in the right way then i think you can always grow into a great uh, machine learning engineer or scientist so that learning to learn ability is pretty nice if i can add something to this to your advice as well and i think we talked about this when we had a chat a couple of weeks ago is also it's fine if you don't know everything right obviously you're you cannot know like everything about the data building the model right. monitoring um the data engineering bit but i think it's very important also to talk with domain experts like knowing that you right. don't know something and 
as a data scientist or the machine learning okay. engineer, it's your role to talk with the expert and get right. the information that you need from them. You don't need to know everything at any time, but right. you need to speak with other people as well and get the information that you need. Yeah, I, I, I totally like 200% agree with that, right? I think, and it's not just experts in the industry, right? Some people who have deployed these at scale at other companies, but also like even the product directors or product managers across different orgs, right? So I think like one of the one of the great ML engineers at Spotify, I mean, the people who are really good and the people who are not so good, I mean, you start seeing that wider network of collaborations a senior great IC has, because by default, they're kind of talking more, they're kind of giving talks internally, they're giving talks externally, like they're trying to understand the problem domains. So even like, even now, right? I mean, I've been talking about this Monday objective modeling for a bunch of couple of years now. The reason why I'm excited about all conversations with the, even a new startup company, because that gives me a perspective of the problem which they face. And that adds to my understanding of the domain, right? So the more you talk with product people, the more you talk with other stakeholders, the more deeper understanding you have. So even at ShareChat, like when I joined, I spent a lot of time talking with the machine learning people, but more time talking with like those account managers who deal with like creators and mm-hmm. who are kind of managing the creator ecosystem and all that, all the strategy ops people, right? Because that's where the core information lies, like what's going on in on the ground reality, right? Oftentimes the ML engineers are not kind of very aware of that. So again, like the more you talk and communicate, over communication is always kind of helpful in some of these scenarios. Yeah, I yeah, definitely agree with you. So yeah, let's just finish the episode with one advice. Like if you had one advice for someone to progress in their career, what would it be? Just one advice. Yeah, just one. Just one is hard. Uh, yeah, I think like if, if it's just one, then I think it would be like embrace failure, fail often, but at each time reduce the cost of failure. So I think like you, you can't, again, like not, not all the shots you take are going to succeed, but it's okay to fail. But as long as each iteration is reducing the cost of failure for you, that means like the next time failing is not that costly. So then you can literally, that's what we did in the offline evaluation as well. If you have a good offline evaluation setup, then you'll fail hundred times in the offline setup and then launch an A-B test, which will have a more chances of success, right? So all the entire offline evaluation, offline online correlation work is literally built around that. So I think like reducing the cost of failure is a nice philosophy to approach. Well, thanks so much, Rishab. It was great to have you here. I yeah learned quite a lot. So thanks a lot for this. If listeners want to stay up to date with you, what is the best place to go? Is it LinkedIn? Is it Twitter? Yeah, I think I'm I'm at eRishab on Twitter and rishabmarathu.com is my website, which has a list of publications, which uh, yeah, I, I do post like regularly on Twitter. So Twitter is the best place. Cool. Perfect. Thanks a lot. Um, yeah, let's record episode two in, uh, I mean, face to face if we can, uh, but yeah, Bye. it was, was great to have you here. Have a good afternoon and yeah, see you soon. Yeah. Thanks Neil. It was an amazing conversation. I also just rediscovered a lot of stuff while talking with you. So thanks so much for the invitation. Thank you.